Welcome to the Cherry Hills Church Podcast. To help us set the tone for the year ahead, we're in a five-week teaching series on the spiritual practice of simplicity. A simple life may feel like loss, but is actually great gain. Thanks for joining us as we learn the way of Jesus together. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year to you. It's great to be here with you. Please don't do your survey right now. I would ask that you would wait till... I want to invite you, if you brought a Bible with you, to take it, turn it to Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. We always have some available in the seat underneath you there, those black Bibles, and you can find this on page 845 of those black Bibles. Uh, Today, as Chuck already mentioned, we are starting a new five-week series to kick off 2024, a series we are calling Simplify. And in this series, we're doing something we try to do almost every year. This is sort of one of the rhythms we have as a church. As we step into a new year, we, tech, we like to start with a spiritual practice or a spiritual discipline because these are opportunities for us when a new year comes to kind of ask these two questions like, where do I need to grow this year? And what do I need to change from last year? And so we look at these disciplines or these practices that Jesus himself practiced in order to draw closer to his father. And so I want to ask, I want to be clear here, though, about disciplines. Whenever we hear that word, I think automatically there's like a negative connotation, right? Disciplines. That sounds like drudgery. It sounds like religious activity. It sounds like rules and so forth. But my whole vision of that changed when I had this picture. I don't know who talked about it, but it wasn't original to me. Where spiritual disciplines are like stepping into God's river of grace. The river is constantly flowing. God is always welcoming us into his presence. And spiritual disciplines are simply a way, a grace for us to step into that river with him and learn how to do life together with him. All spiritual disciplines, I just have to say this are a means to an end, not an end to a means. And the end is always to spend time with Jesus, to become like Jesus, so we can live more like Jesus the way he created us to be. And if that sounds familiar, that's right, because that's really our vision here at Cherry Hills. Would you read the vision, what we're going after together as a church up here on the screen with me? It says, we want to see people of every generation giving themselves fully to the way of Jesus and his mission. And part of Jesus' way was that he practiced these different disciplines, these spiritual practices in order to draw closer to his father. And my simple question is always, right? Like if Jesus needed that to be connected to the father, how much more do I? How much more do we? We have studied disciplines or practices like Bible reading. Chad challenged us that last week on that. We've looked, talked about prayer. We did that last summer. We've talked about giving. We've talked about fasting. This year, as we kick off 2024, we're going to talk about a discipline that isn't talked a whole lot about called simplicity. Now, when you hear that word, I just want you to be honest with me. What do you think? In fact, the very first thing on your notes today is when you hear the word simplicity, I want you to write down, what do you feel? When you think about the spiritual discipline of simplicity, what does it make you feel or think about? How many of you wrote, excited? Nobody, right? Fun! N- no, nobody. I think we probably write words like worried, boring, cheapskate, drudgery, no fun at all. 
And the reason for that is we've accepted this motto in our culture that more, more of everything equals happiness. More money, more recognition, more technology, more sexual partners, more clothes, more vacations, more food, more products to keep me young, more likes on social media, more, more, more equals happier, happier, happier. And so the simple question that I'm addressing for us today as we kick off this series is, is that true? Does more of everything actually equal happiness? Jesus is going to tell us, right? The answer you already know. The answer is no. And if you're following in your series, we're going to discover the next five weeks that while simplicity feels like a loss, I mean, let's be real, it feels like a loss. It actually is great gain. And so if you have your Bible ready, we're looking at Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13, which says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, just a little background here. This was pretty common. People would come to rabbis. Jesus was a rabbi, just a teacher, respected, and they would ask them to kind of deal with some of the family situations to settle matters. And what we have here is a younger brother coming to Jesus, asking for him to tell his older brother to split the inheritance with him. In this culture, the older brother got 50% of the inheritance, and then all the other siblings would break it down among them. We don't like that. Here today, we want justice and fairness, but that was the thing in that culture. And so this guy's basically asking Jesus to go to his brother and tell him, just split it in half with him. He's trying to get Jesus to endorse his greed. Verse 14, Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you and me, between you? He can see his real motives here, right? He wants Jesus. He wants to use Jesus for his own gain. And then Jesus says these words in verse 15, which I have printed on your notes. Would you read them with me? It says, then he said to him, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I want you to see in that one verse, Jesus offers two warnings. The first warning is watch out for greed. Now, what is greed? I'm going to define it this way on your notes. Greed is an insatiable desire and lust for more and more. And again, I hope this series you recognize, we're not just talking about money here, right? We're talking about more of everything. And we can be greedy for all kinds of things. We may not like to think of ourselves as greedy. I mean, we like to call companies like pharmaceutical companies greedy. Right? They're going after us. They're sticking it to us. But the truth is, there are areas in our lives where I just think I need more and more and more. And the Bible would call that greed. The second warning Jesus gives, though, is unlike what we're told in our culture today, if you're following, more is actually not where the good life is found. Jesus says that life, the abundant, joyful life, is not going to come just by accumulating more stuff. But every single day, as Americans in this country, we are told the complete opposite. I'm going to spend some time on this right now because my biggest job today is simply to convince you of that truth. And as I did some research this week, I was listening to a podcast by John Mark Comer, and this light bulb started going on for me. Did you know that the modern advertising industry in America was started by Sigmund Freud's nephew? His name was Edward 
Bernays. He was the pioneer of the modern marketing propaganda machine, and he used his uncle's theory to do it. Sigmund Freud's theory, if you don't know, suggests that human behavior, why we do what we do, is based on our subconscious desires. In other words, if he can get to our subconscious desires, then we might actually be able to change why we do what we do. Somebody who was very influenced by this theory was a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. He took this theory that if I could touch people's subconscious desires, I could get them to do what I want them to do. And if you've ever studied World War II, you know that the propaganda machine that he created is the reason that the people started to get behind his ideas. He was convinced if I could subconsciously scare them, use fear tactics to say, well, these people are the enemy, and if we don't deal with them, here's what's going to happen, then they could get the people to come alongside of them, and it worked. His propaganda machine was really one of the keys to the Nazis rising to power. Bernays saw this, Freud's nephew, And he came to the United States after World War II, and he said, I'm going to use that propaganda idea for advertising. Because he recognized, listen, if I could convince people of their desires to need more stuff, we can get people to buy more stuff. I want you to look at what he writes up on the screen in his appropriately titled book, Propaganda. What a title. Here's what he said, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses, that's us, is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes are formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. In other words, we're being manipulated, y'all, and we don't even know it. They are working behind the scenes to manipulate us. After World War II, the nation's leaders all got together. This is true. You can do research on this. The political leaders, the economic leaders, the market leaders, and they decided, listen, if we're going to thrive as a country, We're going to have to convince people to buy more, to consume more. If our economy is going to grow strong, we need to work on this. And I want you to look again at what Bernays says about this. This is a longer quote. It's a little more difficult to understand, perhaps, but it is worth it so we can see this lie they've created. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and use of goods, listen, into rituals. That we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. The greater the pressures upon the individual to what? Conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, his pattern of food serving, his hobbies. We need things to be consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded. I'm not making those up right here. At ever-increasing pace, we need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive 
consumption. This right here is why we need a new iPhone every year. Even though they're identical. They're virtually the same. Because they have convinced us that this is where happiness comes from. Consumption. Remember this picture from World War II? They were recruiting men and women to come and um, serve. I want you. After World War II, it it looked more like this. The economy needs you to keep consuming. How many of you have noticed, some of you older generation probably have more than we have, or I say we, I'm old. (laughs) How many of you have noticed that things don't last as long as they used to? Do you think that's on accident? We need people to burn things up, to consume more, to throw things away so they can buy and buy and buy. Have you noticed that trends in clothing change every six months? You think that's on accident? Absolutely not, right? Advertising works on these subconscious desires that we have. Think about this. They're not selling products. They're selling desires that are deep within every one of us, right? This desire to be known, to be unique, to be cool, to be hip, to be a part of something bigger, As Richard Foster puts it, and if you want a great book on simplicity, I would recommend his. When taken as a whole, the media commercials constitute a worldview, a rival religious philosophy about what constitutes blessedness. We in the West are guinea pigs in one huge economic experiment in consumption. If I could sum all of what I'm saying up right now, here's the picture I would use. You're the product. I'm the product. They're not selling products to us. They're selling desires to our subconsciousness. Friends, if you're following on your notes, I've spent all this time simply to tell you, modern advertising convinces us that consumption equals happiness. Over time, they've had a deliberate plan to take us from, well, that's extravagant. I don't need that. To, that would be nice to have. To, I really need that to, I've got to have it. I've got to have it. You've heard the term FOMO? That's it. We are being duped to think, I'm going to miss out if I don't have that. And let me just be honest with you. I'm in this. I remember several years ago, the reason I'm remembering it, I looked in our cabinets, and I saw this commercial for a panini machine. How many of you have a panini machine that you haven't used in 10 years along with us, right? I saw this commercial. Now, what are they selling to me there when I see this commercial? Just to be clear, what are they selling? Panini machine? No, no, no. They were selling me this vision of my family gathered around me. And I'm making incredible dinner of paninis. And they're happy. They're hugging. Dad, you're amazing, right? That's what they're selling us. These subconscious desires. And we haven't used the machine for 10 years. And it's just sitting there, gathering dust, and they're going, yeah. What else can we convince to put in your cabinet next year? This is the air we breathe as Americans. Some people have estimated we see up to 5,000 advertisements a day. And listen, Brian's going to talk more about this, but if you're on the computer, Google, social media, they are literally running algorithms while you're on it showing you the things they think you need. 
that you should buy. Have you ever had that experience, right? You might be talking to a friend or a spouse or your kids about some sort of thing, and the next thing you look on Facebook and like, there it is. This is all an effort to target our subconscious desires, buy things, think things, vote for things. That will bring you happiness, and it's working. Check this out. I could not believe this when I saw this. The United States makes up about 5% of the world's population, but we consume 25% of the world's resources. Should I say that again? The United States makes up 5% of the entire population of the world, and yet our consumptive patterns are such that we consume over 25% of the world's resources. I mean, think about it. You can see this in everyday life. In 1976, the largest soda you could buy was 20 ounces. Today, a 32-ounce drink is considered small. And we're buying into this myth, I do, right? Like, well, the 56-ouncer is only 13 cents less or more, and I'm not going to be one of those suckers who falls for it and pays 13 cents less for 32 ounces when I could get 56 ounces, right? They're genius. Here's some more things that have happened. The average, I'm not talking about rich American home, now has over 300,000 items in it, which is twice as much, twice as much as just 50 years ago. The average home has tripled in size. And yet, did you know that 25% of Americans who have a two-car garage can't even fit both cars in those garages? (laughs) because there's too much stuff in the other one. And why do we buy it? Because they know how to hit our desires. I went, uh, when we first moved here, we lived in a really small house over by Washington Park, built in the early 1900s. And I'll never forget, when we divvied out our closets, I got the closet over on the left, and it was, I'm not joking, this big. It's like, wow, how did people survive with this small of a closet? Today, we literally make rooms for our clothes. They're called walk-in closets. And we're convinced we gotta have one. We need to fit all of our stuff in there. Friends, all this to say, we have been taken in, duped, brainwashed. And I say we, I mean me. I am a product of this culture. Do you like my new shirt? But this is all done in such subtle ways we don't even realize it's happening. So friends, if you're following, the myth we're being sold is that more is better. More hours in a day. More money in the bank. More clothes in our closet. More apps on our phone. More likes on Facebook or Twitter. More compliments on our looks. More younger skin. I know that's not an actual thing, but... More vacations. You name it. And I got to tell you up front, this isn't about guilt or shame. None of those things are bad in themselves. There's nothing wrong with going on a vacation, of course. But what we're dealing with is this idea that I need more of them, or I need more of that, or I need more of this. And ultimately, that is what will bring me contentment. It reminds me of that famous John Rockefeller quote. I'm sure some of you have heard this before. The richest man at the time was asked by a reporter, asked this, how much money is enough? And his answer was, just a little bit more. 
That is the lie we are fed every day. And the genius of it, thanks to Freud and Bernays, is that I'm unaware of it. Now, you may, thinking, you may be thinking right here, and I'm betting especially the younger generation is thinking right here, ah, I'd like to at least give it a go. I'd at least like to see if money can buy me happiness, if more and more stuff will actually bring me satisfaction. Here's the thing. There has been a lot of research done in just the last few years that has shown a direct link between the cause of happiness and the more stuff that we have. And what they have discovered, this is a true thing done by non-Christian researchers, is they did a bell curve and they showed the more money you make and the more stuff you can own versus uh, happiness and contentment. And here's the truth. If you're in poverty, of course, if you can get out of poverty, that will bring you more happiness. So there's the bell curve, right? But what happens is once we hit middle class and when they were doing this study, about $70,000, they discovered that after that, the more you had, the less happiness you have. This is why in America since 1952, which is when Bernays started, no coincidence, we have dropped further and further on the happiness scale as a country. This is why early in marriage, for some of you, you, I've heard this so many times, right? Things were so much more simple. We were so much happier then. This is why when you go on a short-term mission trip, you always walk away going, wow, they have more joy than we do. And yet they have almost nothing because we're being sold this myth. Friends, I'm spending so much time on this today as we start this five-week series because unless you're convinced of this, Unless you're convinced that more won't bring you more happiness, this series won't mean anything to you. The practice of simplicity will be pointless to you. But here's the thing. We have enough data now, and shocker here, that Jesus was right. That life does not consist, life, joyful, happy life, does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And so the question is, is there a practice that Jesus followed himself that could help us move away from this greed and this endless desire for more and more. Thankfully, there is, and it's called simplicity. And I could say this authoritatively, I think. Other than fasting, I would say simplicity is maybe the most important discipline we could talk about in this year. And so I'm going to just pick up the story where we left it off. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And we'll come back to some of what I've been saying here. Verse 16 says, And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And if you were a Jew listening to this, you would automatically go, Oh, God has blessed them. God has blessed this person with an abundant harvest. Verse 17, He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now what is the right answer? Give it away. Be generous to people who don't have as much as you. But I want you to notice how he phrases, what shall I do with my crops, my stuff? How easy it is for us to start thinking like that, right? Instead of seeing as everything has been given to me as a gift from God, we start to see it as mine. This is mine, and I can do whatever I want with it. But as we say around here, this is one of our core values, right? God is the owner of everything, and we are his stewards, We are his stewards. Then in verse 18, he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. 
and there I will store my surplus grain. Man, he would fit well in our culture today. If I just invested here, I can get some more dividends here, blah, 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 right? More, more, more. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. A modern translation I saw says, I'll move to Florida and finally be happy. (laughs) Nothing wrong with moving to Florida. But if you think that's what's going to bring you happiness. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. That's a very strong word in the Bible. It means stupid, unwise. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? I want to be clear here. God is not punishing this guy. It's not like, oh, you're going to do that, so I'm punishing you. It's just like, listen, your life is almost over. And yet you're still trying to accumulate more and more and more. Now read verse 21 out loud with me there on your notes from the New Living Translation. It says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. I chose that translation. So some of you, if you got your Bible open, notice it will say, if you're not rich towards God. But the idea is bigger than that. The idea is if you really want a joyful, abundant life, you've got to have it centered on the most important thing. This guy thought the myth of more would bring him happiness, but Jesus says pursuing more, money, stuff, influence, entertainment, clothes, body image, is not going to bring you the happiness that you think. But if you're following... This is what will bring us happiness. Joy is not found in more, but in a life centered in Jesus. And I will say, if we want to center our lives in Jesus, it requires simplicity. And so that's why we're spending the next five weeks talking about it. I want you, we want you, I want myself to experience true, lasting joy. Why? Because that's what Jesus wants for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe he's not withholding from you? He actually wants something better for you. Now, I'm going to confess to you, it's scary for me to teach on this subject because in no shape, way, or means am I an authority figure in this. I have no mastery in this. I have no discipline in this. I have been caught by the myth of more and more times than I'd like to admit. But I am convinced through life experience, through the data, That's not going to ever bring me to joy. And that's all I wanted to hope to accomplish today. Do you believe that the myth of more is just that, a myth? And so what's simplicity? Here's my favorite definition of simplicity. I have it on your notes there by Joshua Becker. He says, simplicity is the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of anything that distracts us from them. I love that. It's removing things that are going to distract us to what we think is the most valuable thing in our lives. Now, we might say certain things are the most valuable. Jesus, you're the most valuable thing in my life. But the point is, are there things I've placed ahead of Jesus that I'm not even aware of that are keeping me from that? Here's my definition of simplicity. If you're following, simplicity recenters our life around Jesus and his kingdom. It is an intentional resistance against the myth of more. And then a recentering my life, my time, my money, my stuff, my relationships around him and what he wants for me. As we move into this series, I want you to hear this a pivotal paradox for you to understand if you're on your notes again, is that simplicity is both a grace and a discipline in that order. 
Grace. It's a grace. It's an invitation. It's a gift. It's an opportunity. If you don't see it like that, I would just say you don't need to come the next four weeks. Because it's just going to become a religious activity for you. It's just going to become a rule to follow. But it's a grace. And if you're following, it's a grace because it is given to us and empowered by God. Just like every spiritual discipline. It's a gift to us from God to say, hey, here's the best life. Here's the path to joy and to happiness. And if you don't see that, it's just going to be a rule to follow. Rules are not the point of spiritual practices. Rules is not the point of simplicity. But if you're also following there, simplicity is also a discipline because it requires us to participate. It's how faith works. Here's the gift of grace that I'm giving you. And then we have to respond to that gift of grace. But you can't get that order wrong. You can't say, okay, I'm going to practice simplicity and then God will be more pleased with me. It's always the opposite. I view this as an opportunity, as a grace, believing that as I discipline myself in this, it will lead me closer to him. John 15, 5, some of my favorite parts of scripture, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Grace, come abide in me. Discipline, and then you will see. Then you will see much fruit, fruit like joy and happiness and peace. Oh, how I want peace. So if you're following here, here's just what I want us to hear, this paradox. Gospel simplicity, not rule-following simplicity, gives freedom and liberation. While the myth of more promises you happiness, it will always fall short. But Jesus' promises will never fall short. And so here's all I'm going to ask. Next five weeks, would you do an experiment with us? Would you put Jesus' promise to the test? Would you be willing to practice some things with us? Trust me, this is going to be hard for me. But would you be willing to see if he is actually right? If simplicity might be the path to a more abundant and fulfilled life. I am not asking you to do this out of guilt or shame. I'm asking you to do this with this idea of openness saying, you know what? I'm not experiencing the joy and peace I thought I would. Maybe Jesus was on to something. And so part of what we're asking is every week, we're going to be providing you a practice guide for that week with several suggestions you might want to try. I would say this week, um, I wouldn't say do them all at once. I'd say set aside some separate times to do. You can see it here, there on the screen, I believe, what these practice guides look like. Nope, we don't have that on the screen, but you will see them as you walk out the door today. Uh, You will be able to pick one of those up. There's an introduction to simplicity, but then also week one. And I'm asking you to try a few things. The first thing is to simply answer this question, what do I really want? That's the number one question Jesus asked in his life to people. What do you want? And we have the right answers as Christians. But the real problem is getting down to the root. What do I really want? What does my life show me about what I want? How does the way I spend my money show me about the way I want? Another activity I want you to try, if you're, whether you're by yourself or you're with a family, is just watch some commercials. I'm sure you do. And ask yourself, discuss it. What are they really selling here? 
What are they really selling? And does that actually change the way you start viewing advertisements? There's, a, there's another one as well, but you don't have to participate. These next five weeks are optional because it's a grace. It is not a work. But let me invite you to. Let's put Jesus to the test and discover whether or not he really does offer the abundant life. And so as we close, here's our question. Here's my invitation. Will I confront the myth of more by practicing simplicity? That's it. It's the only application. Will you join us these next five weeks in order to put Jesus' promises to the test? Now, when I was thinking about this this week, and you're going to now know how old I really am, I kept thinking about that old song written in the 1800s. Some of you probably remember, Tis a, tis a Gift to Be Simple. And I'm going to put these up on the screen here. This was written by a Quaker in the 1800s, right? And this is old language, so we really have to concentrate. But I love what he wrote, Tis the Gift to Be Simple. Because it's a gift to be free. It's a gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, this will be the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. Let's sing that together as we prepare for communion you may not be convinced of that but as we sing these words let's at least be open to the idea maybe that's right maybe this is a gift of grace that God wants us to practice at least these next five weeks thank you for listening to this week's teaching if you'd like more info on our church you can visit our website or find us on Facebook